<laughs> I've always wanted to come out on a horse, even if it is my son's rocking horse. Thank you, Joel. If you guys can give Joel a round of applause. I know that is a very ridiculous way to enter on stage. But I brought this out for a reason because it's, it's going to serve as an illustration as we talk about today. Because you know that, that story, that war story of Troy and the Trojan horse was one of my favorite stories learning about in school when I grew up. And when Pastor Scott asked me to preach this week and after I read that passage, my mind immediately went to that story and that Trojan horse. Because as we're going to discover today, the church at Pergamum had a Troy-like moment. They compromised and they brought into their church something that they shouldn't have. And Jesus wasn't having it. You know, the threat to, to our spiritual uh, well-being isn't always that outside opposition and that persecution that we can see. So often, the greatest threat to our spiritual health is the things that we allow on the inside and so in our text today, we're going to discover this. It's our big idea for today, and it is that the greatest danger to the church, and we can personalize this, it's not just to the church, the greatest danger to ourselves, they're, they're not always the things from the outside, they're often the things that happen on the inside. As we dive into the passage today, we're going to see that this church did face really stiff opposition from the outside. They did face that persecution, but her vulnerability really resided on her inside. And so we can learn a great lesson from this church. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. You guys can go ahead and flip there. We'll be there in a couple of seconds. But I want to define a key word for us today. It's a word that I'm going to say often. You might get annoyed by how much I say it, but it is the word compromise. And so for our text today and the context that we're going to be, the things that we're going to be talking about Compromise simply means settling for less than what God intended. When we compromise, we settle for less. And we're going to see that's what happened in this church. They settled for less than what God intended. And the reality is, this is a weapon that Satan uses against us. You know, in Scripture, we're introduced to Satan, the devil. And it says that he is our enemy. He's a liar, he's a thief, he's a murderer. He attacks us, but he's also very clever, so he uses subtle attacks. And this is one of his subtle attacks, is compromise. And I think the reason why Satan loves compromise so much is that one, it occurs slowly. So we hardly even notice it happen. It's kind of like putting on weight. Nobody eats one donut and then wakes up 50 pounds heavier the next day. It happens over time until you get to the point where you're like, oof, man, what happened? And you start working out or something. You know, it, it's slow. It happens over time. I think he also loves it because it lowers the standards that we once held. So, so whatever standard we, we hold, when we begin to compromise, we start to lower that standard until eventually we accept the things that we once rejected. So the things that we used to stiff arm, we now kind of pull in. And that's why Satan loves compromise so much. And we're going to see that, unfortunately, this church fell victim to his attack. But we can learn from her mistakes. And so, real quick, I want to give you just a 30,000-foot flyover of Pergamum. 
You know, this is the third city that we've talked about in this series. It's the northernmost city of the seven uh, cities. And in this uh, city is the church of Pergamum because they're in the city of Pergamum. And just some, some quick uh, facts about the city. It's really interesting. So if you want to go home and study this for yourself, uh, it's fascinating just the history of this uh, city. But they had the second largest library in the world at the time. They had 200,000 books in this library. And this was before the, the printing press. So these were all handwritten books. It was a very sophisticated city. It also had a bunch of different gods. But two of its uh, main gods were Zeus and, As- and Asclepius. It's a hard one to say. And Asclepius is, is the god of healing. His symbol is the serpent. We still see that on the side of ambulances today. And a, and a fun little side note for you snake lovers, that in his temple, they actually, there was a room that they would fill with snakes. And people would come from all over the world to lay down in this room and have snakes slither over them, thinking that they're going to get healed. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't even hate snakes, but I think I would rather live with leprosy than have snakes slither over me. This city also had a very deep love for the Roman Empire. This was a place where patriotism had crossed the line into idolatry. And there was cults that were following the emperor and making sacrifices to the emperor. For this city, Caesar was Lord, not Jesus. And as we're going to discover here in a couple of minutes, we're going to see that the church in this city compromised in their faith. They settled for less than what God intended. So let's jump in and let's start in verse 12. And as we do, we're going to discover four ways that we can combat compromise so that we don't end up like this church. So starting in verse 12, we read, And the angel of the Lord in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Just real quick, back in chapter 1, when John first has this vision, he sees Jesus with this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So this is Jesus, and he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yes, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So here in this verse, we see our first way that we, can comprom- or that we can combat compromise, and that is to be faithful where you are. To be faithful where you are. Jesus says, look, I know where you live. I know the evil that surrounds you. Again, Pergamum was a city that worshipped multiple gods. They had all these different temples, and they were so engrossed with these idols and these sacrifices that Jesus says, this is the place where Satan dwells, where his throne is. Now, this wasn't the place where Satan literally had a house that he would go to at the end of the day and kick his feet up. But this place was so evil that Jesus says, it's like Satan lives there. And he says, I know where you live. I know the darkness that surrounds you. And yet despite that darkness, you hold fast my name. And he points to this guy named Antipas as an example. And we don't know all that much about Antipas. He may have been the pastor of this church. But what we do know is that he did not compromise in his faith. And because of that, he was killed for his faith. 
And tradition says, don't hold on to this too tightly, but uh, from the study I found, tradition says that Antipas was killed by being placed in a brass bowl, and then a fire was started underneath that brass bowl, and it was heated up until it glowed red hot. And Antipas was seared to death inside of that bowl. That's a horrible way to die. And yet he did not renounce his faith. He did not compromise. He did not settle for less. And so Jesus defines this guy with two words. He says, he's my faithful witness. It's the same title that Jesus has in chapter 1. And just a little side note, I was thinking about this, but we're talking about Antipas 2,000 years later. And all we know is how Jesus described him as a faithful witness. And so I was thinking, man, I wonder how people would remember me in 2,000 years. What, what two words would Jesus use to describe me? Now, I don't know the answer to that, but this guy's got an awesome testimony summed up in just two words. A faithful witness. Despite the darkness that surrounded him, he did not compromise in his faith. And we can learn a great lesson from this, but I think... The natural tendency we have as human beings is to run from difficult situations and to flee danger. We want to retreat from the darkness, not lean into it. Yet as we read through his word, one of the, one of the principles we discover as Jesus' followers, one of the things that we should hold to is not retreat, but advancement. And it's not escape but endurance. And I think, at least for me, I can't speak for everybody, but at least for me, when I start to compromise in this area of being faithful where God has me, when I start to believe the lie that the grass is greener on the other side. We start to think like, man, if I could just get to this place, or if I could just get to this level, all my California friends, right? California's going to hell in a handbasket. Quick, let's all move to Prescott. Right? We've we got to get out of this place. I'm just kidding. If you're from California, we still love you. <clears throat> just don't tell your friends to move here. <clears throat> just kidding. Just kidding. <clears throat> but on a, on a serious note, you know, I've had friends who have come to me and said, Josh, I'm the only Christian in my workplace. Or I'm the only Christian in my class. And it's too hard. And I want to find a new job. Or I want to switch teachers. I want to get out of this class. And you see, we begin to compromise, and, and, our, and our light-bearing capacity begins to dim when we believe the lie that the place God has us in is too hard and too difficult and too dark. Because the question, if you're a Jesus follower, is never, hey, where's God? The question is, how are you going to represent God in the place that you are? Because he's inside of you. You have his Holy Spirit power. And so I want to be careful, because it's not bad to ever move, and it's not bad to switch jobs, but going back a couple weeks, we really have to check our heart and say, why is it that I want to move? Why is it that I want to switch jobs? Is it because I feel like the place God has me, he just can't use me because it's too dark? Or is God really calling you out of that place and into a new season? So we can learn a great lesson from this church and from this guy Antipas just to be faithful where we are. And that's one way that we can compromise or that we can combat the compromise that, that we tend to face in everyday life. And so Jesus continues in this passage. 
And he says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. So he gives kudos to this church for being faithful where they were. And then he says, and he comes in with some corrections. He says, you have some there in the church, not all, but some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so here is where we see the second way that we can combat compromise. And that is to stop tolerating stumbling blocks. To stop tolerating those stumbling blocks in our life. And Jesus points back to a story in the Old Testament. A story that's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 25. And then it picks back up in in chapter 31. I'm going to give you a really quick cliff note version of this story, but I encourage you to go back and read it tonight for yourselves because this is a crazy story. I mean, this is a story where uh, a donkey talks. And so in this story that Jesus points back to, there's this guy, Balak, who is the king of Moab. And he sees all of these millions of Israelites coming upon his land. And he had heard the stories of how God wiped out the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea and provided for and fought for these Israelites that were coming into his land. And so he was scared, and rightly so, because he didn't want to be dethroned. He didn't want his land to be taken over. And so he calls up Balaam, who is kind of like a rent-a-prophet. And so he's like, Balaam, these people are going to take you. They're going to take me out. I want you to curse these Israelites. And so Balaam's like, uh, I could try. And he's like, oh, I'll give you land, I'll give you money. And so he hires Balaam to try to curse the Israelites. But the funny thing is, every time Balaam goes to curse them, a blessing comes out of his mouth. And Balak's frustrated. He's like, I hired you to curse these people, and all you're doing is blessing them. Come on, what's going on? And Balaam's like, hey, all I can do is what God allows me to do. You got to understand, you're never going to be able to attack these people from the outside. God is with them. He's going to fight for them, and you stand no chance against that. So if you want to destroy them, you have to entice them from the inside. And so Balaam tells Balak to bring out these beautiful women of Moab, have them kind of dance around, parade themselves around. It's like the Trojan horse. And the men of Israel brought those women in. They married them. They started committing sexual sins with them. And eventually those women introduced the Israelites to new gods. And the Israelites started worshiping them. They're offering sacrifices to them and worshiping them. And now here in the city of Pergamum, Satan is using that same tactic, that same doctrine of compromise These people were starting to pull in things into their church that they shouldn't have. And they're beginning to worship other gods and commit these sexual sins. And Jesus isn't having it. He's putting his foot down. He's saying, no, that's not all right. I want you to be separate from the world, not look like the world, but to look more like me. And so he addresses that. And this church starts tolerating these stumbling blocks. They're not dealing with them. And you might ask, well, what, what is a stumbling block? And I'll define it because it's, it's just simply a metaphor for a person, a behavior, an attitude, or a thing that leads others to sin and away from God. 
You know, stumbling blocks, they can be internal and they can be external. It's, it's those things in our life that trip us up, cause us to sin and cause us to turn away from God. And Jesus is telling this church, look, there's some in your congregation that are doing things that are contrary to my word and I want you to deal with them. And we know that Jesus doesn't tolerate stumbling blocks. All we have to do is go back to his life and look at an example found in the book of Matthew. Because after Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go to the cross and be killed, good old Peter walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Like, you don't understand. You can't die. And Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. And look at what Jesus says to his good friend Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. See, Jesus doesn't tolerate stumbling blocks in his life. He doesn't compromise when it comes to the revealed will of God in his life. He knows God calls him to do something, so he's not going to let anything trip him up. He doesn't tolerate that kind of stuff. And so that leads me to ask the question, not only for you, but, but for me, is, is there a stumbling block in your life that you need to have a Jesus get behind me Satan moment? Or you identify what that thing is and you say, get behind me Satan. You see, because so often we, we tolerate those, those toxic stumbling blocks in our life because we fear confrontation. Most of us wouldn't talk to our friend like this if we knew that they were a stumbling block to us. We don't like confrontation, and yet the freedom that we want and the freedom that we desire so often is on the other side of that confrontation. And so if we want to move past those stumbling blocks in our life, those things that trip us up, we're going to have to confront them at some point in our life. And we can either do it now or we can wait until years down the road when the consequences are even worse. So if you're sitting here today and maybe pornography is a stumbling block in your relationship with your spouse, you're going to have to deal with that. Either now or down the road. If it's an addiction, if it's an attitude, if it's you coming in every Sunday morning and, and, and worshiping heartlessly, those are the stumbling blocks that we have to confront and deal with if we really want to experience the freedom that Jesus has for us. And so we can learn from this church to stop tolerating those things that trip us up. That's the second way that we can combat the compromise in our life. And this third one ties in so closely with the second one because we can't just say one time, get behind me, Satan, and then just move on. I wish it were that easy, but it's not. So we also have to develop the discipline of repentance. We have to develop this discipline of repentance. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them those stumbling blocks in the church, those people who are tolerating this stuff, I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. The remedy for this church is repentance. And as Scott said, I think it was two weeks ago now, 
Repentance is simply a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And Jesus is telling this church, you've got to change the direction that you're going. You have to turn from your sin and turn towards me. And so, so he instructs this church, hey, repent. And repent, even though sometimes it's associated with like hellfire and brimstone and the you know, preacher on the corner yelling at people, it's actually a very gracious word. Because it offers a second chance and a new direction in life and, and a new way. And so Jesus says, look, repent. And now, again, I wish repentance was as easy as it is just me saying it. But it's actually pretty difficult. And I think it's difficult for a couple of reasons. First is that it requires humility. It requires the dying of ourself on our part and recognizing like, hey, I don't have it all together. I'm still messed up. I still need his grace just as much as anybody else. It requires humility, and it's also not a one-time event. It's a process. It's a discipline. I, I don't think I can remember a time in my life when I've repented of something, of a sin, just one time, and then never dealt with it again. It's always a process. And I can remember back when I first trusted in Jesus, this would have been early 2006, I had a very colorful vocabulary. And I learned it from my dad, who was a mechanic. And he would come home every day with a new cuss word, something that I could just add to my list. And I'd be like, that's a good one. I've never heard that before. And then I would go and use it. And, and over the years, I really built up not only um, a very vulgar uh, vocabulary, but I was very mean uh, with, with the way that I spoke to people. I was, I was a harsh person. And then I accepted Jesus. I was 18 years old. And I'll never forget sitting in my room one night, reading through the book of James. And I came across chapter 3. And chapter 3 in the book of James talks about our tongue being this restless evil. With it, we bless God, and in the very same breath, we curse his creation. And I was so deeply convicted of the way that I was speaking, that I realized I need to surrender this area over to God. And I repented of that. And you know what? It took years, not days, not hours, not even months, but years before I felt like I was actually making progress in that area of my life. It's not a one-time event. And I can stand here today and say that by the grace of God, he has transformed the way that I speak. But every once in a while, one of those four-letter words still slips out of my mouth. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. Apparently, you've never stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night, (laughs) barefoot. (laughs) Things happen, and then all of a sudden, something comes out of you, and you're like, where'd that come from? Right? I, it, it's a process. It takes time. Again, I wish it were as easy as just saying it one time and then moving on and never dealing with that sin again. But it's not. It's a process. It's a posture of our heart. Now, I want to pause for a moment because I want to clarify something. If you are a follower of Jesus, repentance is a process. If you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, there is a defining moment when you repent of your sins and you are adopted into his family. That is a one-time moment. But evidence of that repentance 
is the continual repentance of those sins in your life so that you become more and more like Jesus. So I just want to make sure you don't have to wake up every single morning and pray the prayer and say, am I saved today? Am I saved? So I just, I just want to make that clear. But repentance is a process for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. It's definitely difficult, but it's worth it. Now let's read how this passage closes. In verse 17, Jesus continues. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The fourth way that we can combat compromise in our life is to claim and live out our identity in Christ. It's to claim and live out our identity in Christ. If we really want to combat that compromise, we have to start living out who we are in him. Jesus says twice in this passage, I will give. I will give something to the overcomer. And so if Jesus says he's going to give us something... He's going to give us something. At the same time, if Jesus says something about us, that thing that he says about us is more true than anything else that anyone else can say about us. And so we have to keep that in mind. We can claim those things. It's not arrogant to say, yeah, Jesus says this about me. That's actually a good thing to claim that and to begin living it out. But let's look at some of the things that Jesus says he's going to give us in this passage. The first thing is hidden manna. Again, going back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, during their wandering years, God provided the Israelites with manna each day. And manna literally means, what is it? It was, I don't know what it was, obviously, but it was some kind of like bread substance that would be on the ground each morning for the Israelites to gather and eat. And that food got them through the day. Jesus, in John chapter 6, likens himself to that manna. And he says, I am the bread of life. He is the one that feeds us spiritually and nourishes us not only for the day but for eternity so he said i'm going to give you some of this hidden manna in christ we have all the nourishment that our souls need and we don't need to compromise and think that we need something else or something more about a year ago we went through the book of galatians and it was called jesus plus nothing it's it's not jesus and then something else it's just jesus in christ we are well fed so Jesus gives, him, uh, gives us himself, but I think that this also points to a future time when we will literally eat some manna. I could be wrong on this, you know, people differ on this, but I, I really think that when we get to the feast in heaven, there's going to be something on our plate, and we're going to be like, whoa, what is that? Jesus is going to say, it's manna. I know, but what is it? It's manna. And we're going to be able to partake in this. At least I hope so. I want, to, I want to try some of that. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you some of this hidden manna. I'm also going to give you a white stone. And it's interesting because uh, white stones had a number of, re- of, of um, meanings in, in this day. 
So in a court setting, a white stone would be given to somebody who was declared innocent. In a sports setting, a white stone would be given to the victorious gladiator or sports star. And it served as like a ticket for them to get into the after party and the feast that would take place after whatever sporting event happened. This white stone could also be a a clear, uh, precious stone that would be worn by the priests. So whatever this stone means, we know that it symbolizes a very special blessing that the overcomer will receive. And on that stone is going to be a new name. And this is just mind-blowing. Because this shows just how intimate God is with each person. And it also shows that he is the only one that defines us. Because the only two people in the universe that are going to know what that name is, is the person who receives the stone and Jesus. And nobody else has any input into what that name is going to be. Not even yourselves. Like, you can't be like, hey, can you call me Rambo or something? You know, like, if there, there's, it's just Jesus is going to define you. He's going to speak that name over you. And the reality is, for many of us, we've had people speak, quote, names over us that were destructive and life-taking. And we've grabbed onto those things, and we've allowed them to influence the way that we live life. That's not the case for Jesus because the name that he gives us is going to be life-giving. It is going to be true and it's going to be eternal. And that is powerful to think about. Now, even though we don't know what that name is going to be until we receive the stone, thanks to his word, we do know some things about us already for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. So in Christ, right now, we are already a new creation. That's powerful. In Christ, we are not condemned. In Christ, we are chosen and precious. You know, so often we have those, those names are spoken of us that, that aren't true, but this is powerful. I mean, Victor, think about this. You were chosen and you are precious in his eyes. That's powerful. That's life-giving. We are adopted into his family. We are alive and forgiven. And we are his masterpiece. Mayumi, I don't know the last time somebody called you a masterpiece, but in the sight of God, you are his masterpiece. That's powerful. And these things right here are more true about you than anything else that anyone else can tell you. Man, I hope that encourages you today. This is a new wardrobe that we have in Christ. So often we put on our old clothing. This reminded me of back when I was 17 years old. And I was 270 pounds. You guys like sucked the air out of the room. (laughs) I was a big dude, and I wore very large clothes. And about two months before my 18th birthday, I decided I needed a lifestyle change. And I wish I could tell you it was for some like noble reason, like I just wanted to get healthy. The reality was I really wanted a girlfriend. <laughs> Every girl I'd ask out, they'd be like, you're like my big fluffy teddy bear. 
I took the hint, okay? So I, I decided, that, hey, it's time for me to change my way of living. And I started working out, and I started eating healthy, and I started to lose weight. And as I started to lose weight, I never changed my clothes. I mean, like I would change them daily, but I never got new clothes that actually fit me. I, I kept wearing the same size clothes. I went from a double XL to a medium. I was looking pretty goofy, kind of like this guy. And thankfully, I had a friend in my life who came to me and he said, Josh, dude, you look ridiculous. Spend some money and get some new clothes. You need a new wardrobe because you're not the person that you used to be. And I think our souls need that reminder. So if you're sitting here today and you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're not the same person that you used to be. You don't have to wear those old clothing, those old clothes. You have a new wardrobe in Christ, and we need to start claiming those things and living those things out if we want to combat the compromise that comes against us. And so as we close, I want to give us some next steps, some things that we can do to help us apply what we've talked about today. The first one is to identify an area in your life where you've compromised. We've all had those areas And this is one of those times where it's probably best to get some input from other people. Because the areas that we've compromised are often blind spots to us. We don't see them. So it's good for us to ask the people closest to us, our kids, our spouse, our community group members, our friends, our coworkers. Hey, do you see an area in my life where I've compromised? Maybe it's an attitude or a a way that I, I, I speak to certain people. Maybe it's an actual thing. Identify that area in your life that you've compromised. Remember, they're not always external. Oftentimes, they're internal. And then step two, repent from that area of compromise until your mind and way of living change. Remember, repentance is a discipline. It's not a one-time event. You might be thinking, man, this is going to take a long time. It probably will. Again, for me... Still working on my language, but it took years before I felt like I was making progress. I pray it's not that long for you, whatever area it is for you, but just know that it is a process. But we are in a perfect season to start this because we're in the season of Lent, which is a season of repentance that leads up to Easter. And so there's no better time to start repenting than than right now, of surrendering that over, saying, God, I need you to change my mind and change my way of living. I want to turn from these sins and turn towards you. So that's step two. And then lastly, step three, take a stone and write a word that summarizes your identity in Christ. So as you guys leave here in the middle of the lobby, there's going to be some tables set up with white stones and Sharpies. The stones are for you guys to take. Sharpies, they need to stay here. Don't steal them. We've got another service to get through. But I encourage you, again, we don't know what the name is going to be for for each of us until we actually receive that stone. But we do have a small glimpse of who we are in Christ right now, thanks to his word. And so I encourage you to take one of those stones, and you can write on it today, or you can take that stone home and pray about it and write it, you know, tomorrow or maybe later this night. But write down a word that summarizes your identity in him. So if you're struggling with being, like, like you have a hard time feeling like you're loved by him, maybe the word for you is loved. And then put that stone somewhere where you can see it often in the next week or two. 
You can even take a picture of it and post it on social media. And if you tag Cornerstone, we love hearing stories of how God is transforming people's lives. So we'd love to hear how um, you know, he's using this to encourage you and to transform your life. But I encourage you guys, take that stone on your way out. Write down that word that, that summarizes your identity in it and look at it often as a reminder of who you are in him. Again, this isn't necessarily an easy thing to do to combat compromise, but it's worth walking through these steps so that we can be more and more like him. Would you guys join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the fact that it is life-giving, that it addresses our deepest need, and that is our need for you, the forgiveness of our sins, the new life that we have in you, Lord. So I pray that this morning, God, we would really start claiming and living out who we are in you and that we would not compromise and settle for anything less because that's what Satan wants. He wants us to think that we are less than who you say we are. Make us ill-effective. So Lord, transform our hearts. Help us to be more like you. Father, we can't do it apart from your Holy Spirit power. It's not something that we can just muster up in ourselves. So we pray that you would humble us, that you would break us, and that you'd bring us to that point of surrender. Lord, we thank you for loving us despite our flaws and our faults. And Lord, we long for and look forward to the day that we get to see you face to face. we realize it was so worth it. Persecution and the pressure is so worth it. We thank you for sustaining us here in the middle as we await that day when we get to see you face to face. So encourage my brothers and sisters here today as we leave, Lord. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.